Welcome to the 10th episode of the FMWC podcast. My name is Camila Alibi and I'm your host. And today I'm joined by returning co-host Rachel Filler, who is a soon-to-be third-year medical student at the University of Ottawa. And today we had the pleasure of sitting down with our first male-identifying guest for the podcast. Yeah, and we are very excited to speak with Dr. Elika Lafontaine, who is an Indigenous physician of Korean Anishinaabe heritage, born and raised in southern Saskatchewan. He now practices as an anesthesiologist in Grand Prairie, Alberta, and is serving as the Canadian Medical Association, also known as the CMA, president in 2023. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Elika Lafontaine. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we kind of want to take it back to your childhood. If you could tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up and your experiences in childhood. So I, I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan. My mom is a first-generation immigrant from the Pacific Island of Tonga. She immigrated over to California when she was a teenager. And this is a different story, but eventually made her way up to Saskatchewan with my dad. Uh, my dad is uh, Métis. Uh, Korean Anishinaabe heritage. He grew up in small town Saskatchewan in a farming community called Lestock. And uh, I came from a family of, of five kids. I was the middle child, which I'm sure explains a lot of things. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, I, I can't say that I, I have a lot of really terrible memories of, of family life growing up. I mean, I, I had two very loving parents. We We weren't well to do by any stretch of the imagination. You know, we still had to worry like a lot of, you know, um, middle to low income families figuring out how we were going to make enough to, you know, feed, clothe, um, make sure we stayed warm, things like that. But, you know, throughout my childhood, it we, we really learned a lot from my parents. You know, one of the earliest lessons that I learned from both my mom and dad was this idea that education was kind of a pathway to a better life. You know, which which probably is not surprising for for those who grew up in the same generation as as me. You know that that really was something that a lot of us were taught. But one thing that really helped to form my my attitude towards life and kind of my opinions towards education uh, were related to um, something that happened to me in grade school. So when I was in grade school, you know, ages um, or grades like three to five. Uh, I was labeled as uh, having developmental delay. And it was because I had a really severe stutter. I struggled to pronounce words properly. And um, I was talking to my dad actually about this uh, a month ago. And, and, you know, he talked about, uh, you know, this really thick book that they, they kept on me as they were trying to figure out exactly what was going on. And everything eventually came to a head where, they invited uh, me and my parents in and they sat down with, with my folks and me and gave us the news that, you know, I, I likely would never graduate high school. Wow. You know, and uh, I, I remember clearly, and I've shared this story a few times before, but I, I remember clearly how my mom was holding me in, in the vehicle after and kind of rocking me back and forth. And, you know, she, she obviously was crushed. I mean, she, she, had always imagined for all of her children that we'd go on and, and, you know, create a better life than they had through education. And uh, I remember her rocking me back and forth and just saying to me over and over again, you know, 
you're not broken. You're not broken. And I, I think that that was the first real experience that I had that was directed directly at me that I could say was related to, you know, bias or discrimination, you know, racialization in, in retrospect. I mean, you, you have a lot of very well-meaning, meaning people come into your life, but they have ideas about who you are, right? They, they have ideas about what you can do and, you know, how the problem's going to affect you. And I, I've shared the story of being labeled to many different audiences over, over a couple of decades. And, you know, sometimes after giving keynotes, I, I have people come up to me and say, you know, that's my story. You know, that was the story of, you know, my, my kid and, and it, it really changed the dynamic between, you know, me and the school system and my parents and, and me, my, my parents poured a lot of time into me as a kid after that happened, you know, they, they really wanted to do anything they could to help me. My, my mom, she was a stay at home mom, but she refocused a lot of her attention onto me. Eventually um, me and my two younger siblings actually got pulled out of school and we were homeschooled by my mom. And my dad, who was trained as a teacher and went to law school for a little bit, he he went off to to get additional education and and try and pick up some additional tools. And so I, the, the focus obviously paid off. You know, I eventually turned turned a corner, and whether it was the additional attention or whether I was going to grow out of it, or you know, I, I had a lot of ear infections when I was younger. You know, what whatever ended up happening, uh, a few years later, I was labeled as gifted, and it was it was. The, the most jarring dichotomy on, on one hand, people are telling you that you'll never be anything. And then on the other hand, they're telling you that you're meant for great things. And there's a lot of things that I think propel us into what we do later on in life. And I, I think for a very long time, that memory of my mom kind of holding me and reassuring me that there was nothing wrong with me, right? That I wasn't broken. It it stayed with me, and I think it was a real driving force for me to to move down the path of medicine. And you know, I, I think now with the work that I do nationally with the CMA and the the work that I did before here, you know, being able to recognize the things that people are going through and being sensitive that that at the core of all of us is like this fear sometimes that you're not enough for other things. It's it's it served me well actually. You know, a very traumatic experience. It's probably one of the reasons why I've been able to figure some of this stuff out. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that feeling of, you know, not feeling like they're necessarily enough. Um, and it's really inspiring for, you know, us and I'm sure a lot of people to see how you've overcome those barriers and challenges that you faced. How um did you get specifically into medicine you know what was your path and your journey to becoming a physician and how was it like interacting with a school system after you know in many ways your experience with the school system before had failed you if I may say so you know I I had a series of very unfortunate and very fortunate events <laughs> over my school career I obviously had you know a lot of friction early on by well-meaning people, I'll, I'll once again underline, I don't think that anyone was trying to, you know, destroy my life or destroy my self-image, but that was just, that was normal to expect those things, right? That that was part of the legacy of colonization that I think we we talk about, you know, you just label certain folks as, 
you know, you are going to be something and label other people, you will never be anything, right? And that, that stays with you throughout your life and leads to, I think, a lot of the the inequities that we experience nowadays. But, you know, I I ended up in high school coming across a, a really amazing uh, science teacher. His name was Mr. Walters. He he noticed I wasn't actually really that great at, at writing math tests. So he changed the final to be a uh, be an exercise where we built an electric car. So uh, I realized through that experience that if I could like touch and feel and like apply knowledge, it, it would stick with me. And and that, that helped me learn a lot about myself in, in college. I, I came across an amazing um, scientist named uh, he's Neraldine. So uh, he was department head. I, I still remember sitting down in chemistry 101 and being at the back and at the end of the class, he actually pulled me to the front and he asked me, you know, why are you are sitting in the back? And I said, oh, you know, no reason. He said, okay, you're going to sit here from now on, pointed to the chair. And so every time I came in, he like pointed to the chair and uh, I start sitting there. And after our first quiz, you know, I, I didn't do great. I didn't do terrible. I was just kind of doing okay. And uh, he sat me down and he said, you know, is this as good as you can do? I said, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of learning this stuff. And he said, well, I think you can do a lot better. And so, I mean, he took me under his wing. I, I did a couple summers where I worked in a, in a chemistry lab. And, and this is all in the context of me graduating high school early. So I was, I was 15, 16 in a chemistry lab surrounded by like 18, 19-year-olds. And uh, luckily I was tall, so I, I blended into some degree. I, I felt very, very out of place, right? I, I just had a, a series of really amazing uh, people come into my life who really gave me confidence that that you know I could I could learn things that that were hard. So I, I fell in love with organic chemistry partially because of Dr. Neraldine, partially because I got to blow stuff up, um, and <laughs> and that progressed into later on. And my my parents had always had this dream that one of us would become a doctor, right? And uh, they kind of nudged me along. I, I ended up writing the MCAT on a dare. And no I, yeah, I studied for, for a, a few weeks and then wrote it and I, I ended up passing and I applied for medical school and I can't say I was really confident that I was going to get in. I, I had really good marks, like, don't get me wrong. And I did decent on the, the MCAT, but I, I didn't walk in with a whole lot of confidence. And ended up having a med school interview. I, I try to just be super honest. The, the the answer that I had to that question of why do you want to be a doctor? Uh, I, I was kind of workshopping the idea with my brother at the time. And um, we, we came out with this answer, you know, uh, around trust. But it was the idea that as a physician, no matter where you are in the world, you can have someone come in, not to speak the same language, not come from the same place, but then talk, start to tell you about their bowel movements. Right, like what kind of job is like that, right? <laughs> or you just you implicitly have like this enormous amount of trust, right? Yeah. And uh, ended up getting into med school at U of S, and like a lot of med students, I mean, we all feel out of place on our first day. Um, I think I felt probably a little bit more out of place than the average person. And we had an early exam, and I think I got like a seventy-four or something on it. I, of course, am thinking I'm going to fail med school now. Right, because I'm I'm surrounded by all these Type A personalities, and you know I I remember going to the professor's office um, in that second week, 
and, you know, asking them, you know, can I arrange for tutoring and all this other stuff, all the skills that I picked up in college, right? Like I'm going to be proactive and, you know, I'm going to, going to take care of this. And I remember the, the professor telling me, if you don't pass first year and repeat the year, it's not the end of the world. And I remember walking out of that office thinking to myself, okay, I'm done. I'm done with med school. And, uh, I was walking down the hallway, just thinking to myself, I'm going to go back to Regina. I don't belong here. I just need to be around my parents, you know, be around the people that I know. And I ended up passing by someone named, um, Valerie Arnold Pelchet. So she is the current lead for the Indigenous Access Program at University of Saskatchewan. But she was also the the lead at that time. It was called something different, but she was essentially in, in the same role. And, you know, she she knew I had gotten into med school and I was the only Indigenous person in all four years for whatever reason. There, there had been other graduates who were Indigenous, but I was the only one in those four years for whatever reason. And uh, she sat me down and I just kind of poured out my heart to her. And she introduced me to the dean, you know, and I'm, I'm just a kid. Like, I don't know how med school works. I didn't know that the dean is not supposed to be this accessible, you know, individual you can talk to and stuff. And, and she goes in and introduces me to, you know, uh, Dr. Alberton. And uh, I went into his office and talked to Val every week. Of med school. I think I went for coffee to, with them at least once every two weeks. And that is what sustained me through med school. You know, it was, uh, I don't think I appreciated the social signaling that probably went along with that. You know, the fact that I was like talking with the dean probably communicated certain things to people who had lower expectations of me. But you know, the two of them, they were just, they were so nice to me, you know? And I can't remember a single time that I walked into Dr. Albert's office and that he didn't stop what he was doing. You know, sometimes he'd make me wait because I'm on a call or anything, but he'd have these big stacks of paper. I mean, I know how busy a dean is now, you know, but he would always make time for me. And sometimes we'd talk about classes. Other times we just talk about life. He had a Southern drawl. He was a pediatrician who, you know, worked with, with kids who, had, uh, you know, HIV. And, uh, I mean, those were, those were amazing memories in med school. And I, I think without that, that line of teachers that I came across, and I think it was just complete luck to tell you the truth. Like looking back, your life always makes sense at the time. It did not feel like it was a straight line. Uh, I don't think I would have made it through med school. You know, I don't think I would have made it into residency. And you know, I, I appreciate that now talking to medical students and, and residents, like I, I feel the fear and discomfort that I think a lot of people go through nowadays. And uh, I, I think that that's, once again, uh, things that maybe weren't that pleasant to go through, but at the end of the day, when, when you're in practice and when you're in leadership, I, I think folks who've gone through those things they have a deeper level of empathy because they actually know how it feels. Yeah. And it's not talked about. I think more and more it is, but that fear, uh, you know, I'm about to start residency in July. And that's a scary thing. Um, and not nearly as scary, I think, as what your experience was, but having those mentors and having those lifelines to kind of 
tell you that it's going to be okay and to see you as more than just a med student, more than just a resident, uh, I think makes makes a big difference. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, I am hoping that over time, the culture of medicine is changing. You know, we we attach so much of who we are and why we're important to our academic performance or whether or not, you know, that one professor says a kind word to mm-hmm. us. Yeah. You know, and we we don't often focus on, you know, the impact that we have on patients' lives. You know, I, I appreciate deeply, you know, people who take their time out in training to, you know, hold the hand of the 90-year-old who hasn't had physical contact or talked with someone probably for the week that they've been in the hospital. Yeah. You know, or who spends that extra, you know, time with with someone who just went through a major loss, you know. And I, I will say, especially to trainees who are listening, those will be the most special memories that you have of being a physician. It will not be making the right diagnosis, although that does feel really good. Uh, it will be when people are at their lowest and you were there to support them. You know, that that's what I think is the most magic about being a physician. Mm-hmm. And that trust that they give you to be there when they're at their lowest. Now, to kind of switch gears a bit, um, for our listeners who may not be familiar, the CMA is the Canadian Medical Association, and Dr. Lafontaine is the president of the CMA. So can you touch on what the CMA is for those who don't know and what your mission and mandate is in this time in 2023? The, the CMA is an institution that's more than 155 years old. You know, it was formed three months after Confederation, so it's almost as old as Canada itself. And its role is to be the voice of Canada's physicians on a national scale. And I, I think due to just the way the healthcare system is, is changing, uh, the CMA has, has gone into advocating on a more provincial and territorial level as well. But... Uh, our focus has always been national. Um, there, there's not uh, a lot of awareness of, of just what actually has grown and incubated within the CMA over the years. So Canada Blood Services came out of the CMA. Health Canada came out of the CMA. Um, a lot of the the most important and incredible things that we actually have as part of the health system uh, were because the CMA and by extension Canada's physicians were at the table helping to build things that needed to be built. And you know, uh, nourish things that that needed to thrive, right? And so um, I would be remiss if I don't talk about our corporate statement. So <laughs> I'll just go ahead and read that real quick. <laughs> so um, if you go to the CMA website, scroll down to About Us, you'll, you'll find kind of a description. So every organization in Canada, where it's the CMA or, or another national medical organization, will we'll kind of have a spiel about what they do and you know, under what we do for the CMA, it says, you know, as a thought leader and influencer, we drive change in health, in the health system, and for the health workforce by championing the medical profession, mobilizing knowledge, influencing policy and public opinion, convening, collaborating, co-creating, empowering through transformative giving, and developing and amplifying change leaders. So what does all of that mean, right? Uh, if you look at the health transfers that hopefully will become a, a permanent part of the budget after it gets passed and later on this month. Uh, the CMA's fingerprints are all across that. So mid-pandemic, the CMA was asked, 
what should we focus on? And the things that came out in the health journal are essentially almost all the things that the CMA said to focus on. Uh, the priorities on, you know, dealing with with backlogs and and primary care, the focus on mental health and the health workforce, you know, making sure to address addictions uh, and the opioid crisis, modernizing data systems, uh, all, all of those things were, were part of the asks. You know, creating a, a national data framework was something that that we've talked about, and I'll go into a little bit more detail because I think that's sometimes a pretty heady thing to, to wrap your head around. Uh, and then things like national licensure have all been part of things that the, the CMA has been very focused in, in advocating for the past couple of years. And it's been delivered now with the health budget. You know, I, I don't think that the communication on, on what the health health budget actually means has been, you know, shared with Canadians in general as, as well as it probably could have. But there, there's really four big parts of it. There's, uh, you know, the discretionary spending that that provinces and territories can use to focus on things that they think is important. There's the Canada Health Transfer, which is probably a term that people get familiar with every four years. You know, that's how much money gets transferred over. Tied to that is a commitment on data. So everyone who signed the CHT, which is all premiers in the country, uh, they have now signed on to a data framework. So that is a part of it, right? So that is a commitment that that came out, which hasn't been tied in with funding in this way before. Uh, the bilateral deals, those one-to-one deals that the federal government does with, you know, each of the provinces and territories. Tied to that was the commitment to recognize credentials, which is one of the first steps in the continuum of moving towards national licensure, which I know all of us would really love to have sooner than later. Um, and, you know, the breakthrough that that we see in Atlantic Canada, where there's going to be a, a locum license that covers all four provinces, you know, May the 1st, you know, that that has its roots in, you know, the discussions around around those bilaterals. And then there's kind of this other column where you have, you know, half a billion dollars for a center for health workforce excellence. You know, we've never tracked and coordinated in how we train and distribute physicians across the country, right? It's all been very ad hoc and deeply competitive, you know, for one province or territory to win, the other ones have to lose, right? Um, so that's never been done before. There's $2 billion for Indigenous health along with, you know, a variety of other funding. And so, you know, what what does the CMA do? The, the CMA brings forward ideas like this because they were ideas that were brought forward by physicians who understand the needs of their patients and by patients who partner with physicians. And uh, we bring it and mobilize it through the machine that is government, you know. And, you know, the the tale of change is often quite long. You know, you, you don't really get things into budget by, you know, mentioning them a month before the budget gets released, right? Um, these discussions start years before, and then they they start to mature until they became ideas that that people could wrap their heads around and then put them into budgets and and have them be measured and, and other things. And you know what what the CMA really does is it it helps to operationalize things that are important to physicians and patients, and it tries to create positive change for the healthcare system so we can thrive in the environments that we work in and, and patients can get the care that they need. Yeah, and at the core of it all, it seems, is you know advocating for really what's best for society in terms of healthcare. You mentioned there was actually a really great quote that I read online uh, where you were speaking about the importance of advocacy um, in leadership. 
and you know how the most important aspect of being a leader is really amplifying others' voices as opposed to being the loudest person in the room. And I thought that was a really great and meaningful statement that you made. Um, and so it's it's clear from what you're saying and you know from what you've done that advocacy is a huge part of your platform. Um, and as CMA president, can you tell us a little bit more about the specific things that are important to you um, with respect to advocacy? Being, being in the CMA presidency is has both uh, unlocked new levels of me being able to advocate, but it, it's also been restrictive. And let me explain this to you know folks, because you, you often don't think about this um, as you kind of move up the ladder of leadership. The, the louder your voice can be around the table, the more you have to be very careful with this deployment. And I think I, I've, I've seen that in action. You know, obviously I, I've spent time with a lot of really amazing mentors. I, I've learned from elders and, you know, my, my own parents and my grandparents. And one thing that, that I learned in advocacy is that the, the point is not to take credit for what's happening. The point is not even to win with your idea. The point is to get people moving in a direction that will actually be helpful. And if people can't claim those ideas, if they can't claim their voice, there's not a whole lot of incentive for people to move forward and actually do things after you leave the meeting. And it, it takes a whole lot of effort to force people to do anything, whether it's in government or you know, elsewhere in life. And so I, I think when I, I, I reflect on the first half of my, my presidency year, th there are a lot of things that are meaningful to me and what we we've advocated for. So, you know, when I, when I ran to be CMA president and, you know, was, was uh, talking to Alberta physicians uh, during my campaign night, I talked about three broad areas. I talked about addressing the isms, you know, uh, sexism, racism, classism, you know, ageism, ableism, all these things. I talked about creating healthier working environments. And uh, I talked about mobility of physicians, you know, pan-Canadian licensure. And I was lucky enough that the CMA uh, was actually focused on the same things, you know? And so I think prioritizing those has been a mix of, you know, their importance, but also the opportunity. You know, I, I think more than ever, when you look at something like pan-Canadian licensure, Mobility of physicians across our 13 different jurisdictions. We've talked about this for 20 years, you know. We had moments in kind of the mid-90s where there were changes in, you know, how professionals in general could be mobile across the country through like some legislative acts. I think in 2007, we had, you know, agreements on internal trade that influenced uh, how how physicians and, and other health providers were, were able to move back and forth and, you know, it really put pressure on regulators to figure out how to streamline folks coming internationally to, you know, be eligible to practice and other things. But to a great degree, we, we haven't opera, operationalized these things in the way that we have in the last, you know, 12 months. And when, when I look at back at, at the things that were important to me coming into this and things that we've been, been able to achieve, um, I, I'm very proud of what we've done with, you know, the the Atlantic Regional License. You know, Canada as a federation, it's interesting, and I, I think COVID was one of the very um, recent examples of this. You know, all the provinces and territories look at each other and kind of wait for someone to do something, 
and then they do it themselves. And that's how innovation spreads throughout the country. You know, and so I, I, I really believe that with the Atlantic provinces, you know, coming together and making the right decision to allow folks to, to have a, a regional license and ability to be mobile across those poor provinces. I think BC, Alberta and Yukon and Northwest Territories, it makes sense to have a regional license. Maybe that includes Saskatchewan too. If you look at the natural way that people move throughout the country, you know, if you look at folks who, who work up north, um, they tend to migrate from Nunavut to Northwest Territories to Yukon and back and forth, right? Um, and so if we, if we look at how people naturally move, I think that we'll, we'll, we'll see further advances in, in premiers realizing that, hey, it's, it's about time for us to, to move forward with this stuff. Uh, the conversation around burnout has really shifted, I think, in the last 12 months. You know, a big part of that was Catherine Smart, who was my predecessor. And, you know, I learned a ton from her and have continued on with with the narrative, which I, I think is really settling in the right place. The reason why people are burned out at work is because it's super unhealthy to be at work. You know, and it doesn't matter how much yoga you do at, at home. <laughs> when when you go back to those environments and... Uh, they're they're toxic in some places. Um, it it doesn't matter what you do for your own self resiliency. That that work environment will eventually break you down. What do you think yeah. makes it unhealthy? And like, what are some of those toxic qualities of a workplace that we need to change in medicine? Mm -hmm. Now, th this goes back to the experience that I shared when I was younger. So, um, I. I've had the idea, and I, I couldn't form it until later on in my life, but I, I always had this idea about like stories we tell ourselves, right? And, um, you know, as an aside, me and my siblings were, were part of a boy band. Like growing up, we performed for about 20 years and, you know, we, we toured. And when I was going to med school, it was like med school or toured Germany with, you know, some some pop band. But um, when when you're writing music and you're performing and when you're living through moments where people are projecting onto you, like who you are and what you're about and all those other things, you, you start to, you start to recognize, I think with a whole lot of acuity, the, the stories that you tell yourself, you know, when you wake up and you talk in your mirror, you know, you, people usually only think about this when they're doing like positive affirmations, you know, after lifting, listening to like an audiobook or something like that. But, you know, there are certain, there are certain things that we, told ourselves in medicine that helped us early on, but the world changed around us and ended up being the very things that are harming us now. Right. So uh, one of the, the stories is that if you dedicate your life to the practice of medicine, the, the, the pain and the frustration and, you know, the lost opportunities and the broken relationships and, you know, the, the spent youth and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, will be worth it in the end, you know? And I, I think 30, 40 years ago, when the, the physician was a central part of the social fabric of a town, you know, when working in the hospital meant being a part of the community, it, there wasn't a division. When we had very strong social cohesion between physicians, like you went to work, you played basketball with the same people, you know, this still exists in pockets across the country, but um, you, you had that very strong social cohesion, you know, 
training institutions were interested in making sure that that you were tight with your coworkers. They wanted you to congregate together. They wanted you to be close to each other. I think you could have spent your life in, in medicine and still gotten out, you know, those things. But over time, the world changed. You know, uh, we don't, we, we still are among the most trusted, if not the most trusted profession. But our place in the community has shifted. You know, more and more of us feel when we go to work that, you know, we're just there to, you know, be a cog in a wheel and we go home and someone else replaces us when, you know, we head home. We are realizing more of the negative impact of choosing work over relationships, choosing work over our health, choosing work over, you know, other things that should be important to the average person. Um, and I think the system has just become much more extractive, you know. Um, and it, it's it's a journey that we've all taken together, I think. Like, you look at how work used to be in the 70s and 80s. I mean, you'd stay in a job for your whole career. You'd get a pension. You know, you get vacation, all this other stuff. We moved into a gig economy, which really should be translated into, I'm going to give you the lowest amount of money possible with no connection to you, and you're going to do your job, and then I have no responsibility for you as an employer. You know, so I I think we've we've kind of taken that journey with other Canadians into the place that we are now. And we still haven't moved away from this belief that if we simply sacrifice everything for medicine, we'll get what we want out. But we're still told that, right? We, we still see colleagues do that. We still celebrate when someone works for 72 hours straight, you know, we pat them on the back and say, you know, great job. I'm glad that you did that. You know, I, I remember in residency, we were introducing, uh, you know, sleep hour restrictions, right? And it was always interesting as a, a trainee to stand there, as you saw, you know, one of your fellow residents try and get out and, and be, be subtly uh, social signaled that, you know, if you go around on patients, that would probably be best, even though, you know, you've timed out for the night or you stuck around just for one more surgery or other things. And, you know, that's, that's something that we're going to have to figure out in medicine. You know, uh, why do we work too hard? It's because the system did not plan well. You know, why am I on 24, 48 call as an anesthesiologist? It's because they haven't hired enough people. That That's really the answer. It, there is no broader meaning to, <laughs> you know, working 24 to 48 hours uh, in a row. And, you know, although it is really, really important, I, I think as a profession, we've reached our breaking point. And, you know, COVID was a time of incredible heavy work, but also long, empty slowdowns. You know, with, with the first slowdown, especially for, for anesthesia and kind of surgical services, I mean, we shut everything down except for a single OR. A lot of us suddenly had you know, weeks on weeks, we couldn't go anywhere, but uh, we had weeks on weeks to, you know, sit back and, and reflect on, you know, the meaning in our lives and what was actually important. I, I mean, I never, I had always thought in medicine that if there was a choice to help a patient or me to be physically harmed, I'd always choose the patient. But now for the first time, you actually had a literal situation where you had a pathogen, you had no idea the impact that was going to have on you. And you could bring it home and infect your family. And you were seeing in the news that there wasn't enough resources to actually provide care for everyone. 
you know, and uh, I, I think we're quick to forget just how scary it was then and how literally existential the crisis was. Like we literally were going to die if uh, we were exposed. Yeah. And I mean, I, I remember sleeping in my garage um, after coming home that, that second night that I came back, I went in the house the first time and I'm like, oh, I can't do this. So I slept in my, my garage for a few weeks. I had colleagues who did the same thing. Wow. You know, we were just terrified. And I think for the first time in a long time, a lot of us slowed down enough to realize if we do this, we are going to hurt the things in our life that are most important. And I think that's a necessary conversation that that we need to have as a profession. And, you know, that's going to lead to, I think, a lot of changes that will be healthy for physicians. But I think it'll also reorient the way that we interact with patients. And I I also think that that's going to be healthy if we can figure out this team-based care. Absolutely. We've had so many great discussions so far about the CMA and your experience growing up and, you know, burnout. We are at a, our core, a podcast about gender equity. Um, and you are our first uh, male guest on our, on our podcast. And so you know, what do you think is the role of allies in medicine, be that for women in medicine, the LGBTQ in medicine, um, you know, BIPOC communities in medicine? What does allyship mean to you? And and what is the role of an ally moving forward? Yeah, well, well, first off, thanks for the invitation. I had no idea I was the... Uh, Woohoo, first, you uh, are. Yeah, yeah, the first male identifying uh, guest on the show. That, that's, that, that means a lot to me. Thank you for that. You know, with with allyship that I've I've received, like I, I view mentors as like allies, right? Um, I think in any relationship, there's a value that gets exchanged, and it can be transactional, it can be relational. You know, that's that's a different element of kind of how you talk about that relationship. But you know, value flows one or two ways, and when you think about allyship, I think we're having much more blunt conversations about where the value is flowing. You know, I, I honestly think the reason why women in medicine hasn't advanced the way that it needed to, or, you know, racial equity or, or all these other areas is, is really because allyship had value flowing the wrong way. How often have we been told, has women in medicine been told, if only you do this, you'll get what you want. But you know, you got to let these things happen first, you know, um, don't speak too loud, you know, don't take credit for your ideas, don't move too fast into leadership positions, et cetera. And I, I think the role of an ally is to really be very aware of that value exchange, you know, and you, you can get value a lot of different ways. It can be fiscal, it can be reputation, it can be uh, feelings. It could be a lot of different things, right? And when when you seek out allies, and I say this not just for you and and women listening on this podcast, but also myself as somebody who who is always in need of an ally. Um, be really mindful of people who can have value flow your way. You know, and we we eventually meet. I think in our lives, if we've had enough mentors, you know, those people that just seem to really lift us up, you know, really elevate us. You know, we walk away and feel like we received so much and they asked so little, 
you know, and I, I think that we need more allies like that, you know, more people who are very willing to support the causes that we believe in and the inequities that we're trying to fight and really don't need any of the resource value that comes out of it because they just have that strong belief and they get so much emotionally out of the experience of, of seeing people who should win and should have equity and should be in leadership um, achieve that, you know? And, and I, I do see a shift in the, the milieu of, of, of allies out there. You know, I do think we have a much higher quality of allyship nowadays than we did, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. Maybe that's because we're actually labeling allyship appropriately instead of, you know, uh, what whatever it was before. But I, I, I do encourage any allies who support women in medicine to really put a lot of thought into what are you getting out of this and what are you contributing? and to make sure that you're you're getting into it with with a clear idea of you know the balance between those two because the the more value that you can have flow out to the people that you're trying to support the faster things will actually change other than maybe joining a band <laughs> a boy band <laughs> what other advice would you have for the next generation of healthcare professionals i i think there's a lot of things that are going to change in medicine over the next few years you know, the, the role of physician will always be important, but the space that we'll take and how we work with others is is definitely going to shift, in my opinion. I think the days of us kind of going it alone and trying to, you know, make solo practice work or just working with a couple of physicians, I, I think 10, 15 years from now, you know, we'll, we'll look back and wonder why did we ever practice that way? You know, why did we not more work more closely with our colleagues in, in different areas of, of medicine and share the workload in the way that I, I hope medicine will eventually grow. You know, that that's just one example of, of how things will change. So, you know, a really important piece of advice is just to be open to things being different. You know, I, I, I have a 14 year old, my, my youngest kid is, is eight. There's, there's four of them. And, you know, I, I was talking to them, my, um, my 10-year-old, she she always says, like, in the days of yore, whenever she asks me about my childhood, right? In <laughs> olden times, right? And uh, you know, they're they're growing around, growing up around like the internet. I mean, I I don't know your guys' ages, but I, I remember when Netscape and AOL and like these dial-in types of internet access, uh, you'd wait like three minutes for a picture to download, you know. I mean, the, the, the world that you guys are growing up in and that my kids are growing up in way different, you know, uh, AI has become a thing like chat GPT is like crazy, you know, crazy, absolutely crazy, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, that'll be your generation's internet. You know, um, I sit back and remember using Toronto notes and trying to memorize things because I couldn't pull out. Well, I, I had my uh, Palm Pilot. You guys might not even know what that was, but it, it was, if you just had the, yeah, if, if you just had the program for memos, that's what a Palm Pilot was. And maybe you could call on it, but, um, you know, it, it, it's it's like a part of what trainees do now where they, they use 
you know, a, a device to support like learning and exploring and investigating and other things. And I, I think that AI will become a part of that. And I don't think that any of these technological advances are going to replace us in the same way that I don't think teams are going to dismantle the role of the physician, but it will be very clear that there's a difference between those who work well in teams and use technology appropriately uh, versus those who don't work well in teams and, and reject technology. You know, so um, really em encourage people to embrace the changes that are coming, you know, and think about how it can make you a better physician. You know, when when I served on the council over at the Royal College, we we had lots of chats around uh, competence by design and, and how can you really impact safety and quality within the healthcare system. And, you know, it's anti-intuitive, the, the answer to that. The, the biggest impact for patients is not having a good physician become excellent, but it's having someone that is just at that threshold or below the threshold of being uh, as good as we want them to be, enter into that space where they're good. You know, and I, I think that teams and uh, technology is, is going to be a big part of making sure that we create those supportive structures. You know, after a while, even the most complex things become straightforward. You know, you, your brain starts to work in, in ways that you were trained to do. I mean, I walk into a room and I can't help but think to myself, oh, yeah, that person will be an easy IV start. That person will be a difficult airway. I mean, that's just how your brain starts to get wired after you know, the hours and hours that we spend training and practicing. So you'll figure that stuff out, but really embrace things that can amplify you like technology and people that can support you. You know, your, your colleagues are, your colleagues are a really important part of your practice. So, you know, spend, spend the time to do it well. Thank you so much. Hopefully chat GTP doesn't take over our jobs, but <laughs> <laughs> who knows? But being open to that change, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lafontaine, for being with us, for being on the podcast, for sharing your stories and being so open and honest about your experiences. We're, we're very grateful to have had you on and to, to be able to amplify your voice to all of our listeners. Thanks for having me. For more information about the CMA and their mission, please feel free to visit our show notes where you can find their website and how to get involved. And that wraps up the 10th episode of the FMWC podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.